We talked in the first conference about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ by becoming like St. John and encountering first God's mercy and then seeing his glory. Today I would like to move to the next part of the Mass after the introductory rites into the Word of God. And it's beautiful and providential that our first reading from the letter to the Hebrews says that the Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating even between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. I mean, that's power. That the Word of God is that powerful. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. As we see here, the beautiful, the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, when we think about words, I was reminded of this with my younger brother who had, at that time, a six-month-old niece, and he said, oh, she, she began to coo. Of course, I didn't know what cooing was because I don't obviously have any kids. And so he says, no, that's when they discover their voice. And, you know, you first discover your voice and you make sounds and it's kind of entertaining for kids. And then eventually they develop words and then sentences. And these words and sentences have power, but you first have to have a voice. Well, it's the same with God, that he first sends the voice of one crying out in the desert, namely John the Baptist to prepare the way for the word to come among us, Jesus Christ. And so words have power. If I think of a word now that you don't know of, but I say it like basketball, now that word is out. You have it. The word has power. It first must be in the intellect that God... The Father is the intellect that the word Jesus Christ proceeds from. This is what St. Aquinas or St. Augustine says. And the word exists, particularly in the Mass, in two ways. Through the proclamation of scriptures and the Eucharist. And sometimes we as Catholics can be unjustly accused of not understanding the Bible. You don't read the Bible. To that I say, yes, we don't. We have not just the book, but the word. And see, we are not a religion of the book, as our Protestants, our brothers are, or Mormons, or Muslims. They're a religion of the book. We are a religion of the word. And the word is alive and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so Catholics don't read just the Bible, I mean, for several reasons. One, historically, there were many people, many of our ancestors going back to Germany or Ireland, could not read. They were uneducated. Secondly, it was a practical. Before the printing press, we just didn't have the, the finances. Everyone could afford a Bible. But I think the more important thing when we look at it liturgically is because the reason the scriptures were not just read in private is because they were meant for a community. St. Paul's letters, whether it's the Ephesians or Corinthians or Philippians, They're meant for communities to be read as a whole together. It's not just about my relationship with God. It's about we read the scriptures together as a community. And where do we do that? 
We do that at Mass. You'll notice in that handbook of the acolytes and lectors, on pages 27 and 28, um, I basically went through the whole liturgy of the Mass and put in where this, that part of Mass is found in the Scriptures. If you come to Mass, it's just it's completely saturated. The words of the Mass are saturated with the Word of God. That the Word of God is living. It's not just a book. And the other main reason is because of the effect. You know, if you could read poetry, it loses its effect. But if you listen to poetry, it stirs the heart. It has a greater effect or impact on us. See, Jesus never said in the gospel, those who have eyes ought to read, let him read. No, Jesus said, those who have ears ought to listen. And so we come to Mass to listen to the Word of God. You know, actually, it was very controversial, you know, even about 60 years ago, whether or not that you should have missalettes at Mass. Because some people say, well, you can follow along easier because you can read. But actually, initially, they said, no, the person has to hear the Word of God, not just read the Word of God. So that's, that's the reason why we come to listen to the words of God. The Old Testament, we know, is usually the first reading. The Psalms, the Psalms should be sung, right? The Psalms are songs. It'd be like you go into a basketball game, and uh, before the game starts, someone stands up and says, Oh, say can you see by the daunterly light. You'd be like, that sounds ridiculous. The national anthem must be sung. But same with our psalms. They should be sung, especially on solemnities. Obviously, on daily mass, it takes a lot of work. But on Sundays, the psalms should be sung. And then the second reading is usually from the epistles, the letters of St. Peter, um, St. Paul, John. And then, of course, we have the gospel. The gospel goes in a three-year cycle, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is read almost every year. So if you go to mass every day for three years, you will hear the whole gospel. You will hear the whole scriptures, most of it. And so we as Catholics, we listen to it communally. Then we get into what's called the homily. It's fascinating. I don't know how many... Who here lives in Lincoln? Okay, just a few. If you drive down 84th Street, 84th is called Church Row, right? It's like... Um, I mean, you've got to love how the Catholic Church and its love and its wisdom, the way and where they built churches historically, they'd always build the biggest churches close to, you know, sometimes uh, the, the governmental buildings or the king's palaces. And then they'd always have like kind of a, a shrine church, which was an important place for a pilgrimage, kind of where people would go to the marketplaces. But you always had kind of your, your parish church in your neighborhood. We as Catholics have parish boundaries, and the Lincoln Diocese is one of the few dioceses that, in the country that actually abide by the boundaries. So you go to your parish. As a pastor, he wants to know where his sheep is. He's got fence around. And so it's, I've always kind of find it strikingly odd like how like, the Protestants, their model is different. It's got to be more for marketing, right? And so you drive down 84th Street, and they've got to have you know, something catchy to market. You've got to have the, the prime location kind of like Walgreens or CVS, so that people see your church and so that you can be drawn in. Well, the second church of science, not the first church of science, 
I guess there must be a first church of science here in Lincoln, but the second church on 84th and A, they had a marquee, and the marquee has all these different digital um, things that flash up. And one of them said, if you want a weekly sermon by phone, call this number. So I'm like, wow, maybe I should call it and get some homily ideas. You know, if, if, <laughs> I mean, maybe we should do that. And I, you know, here's my homily for the weekend. I'm going to call you. Um, go to church. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's marketing. So, like, the homilies. What is the homily supposed to be for? The word homily is the Greek word for explanation. As St. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks alike, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified. When I was in the seminary at Mount St. Mary's a few years ago, there was a deacon in the class of Hedemy, and now he's a priest, Father Sam Plummer of the Archdiocese of D.C. And he was a great preacher. And the reason why he was a great preacher is because he preached Christ, and he preached Christ crucified, as St. Paul says. But he did this unbeknownst to anyone. Throughout the whole year, he took track of the homilies and how many of the homilies at Mass never mentioned the name of Jesus or God or the Lord. And it was astounding. It was like... 70%, and a lot of them, even faculty members and deacon and his classmates. And so, anyways, his point was, guys, we have to, as priests, preach Jesus crucified. That's what St. Paul says. There's no such thing as meology. You know, let me tell you a story about myself. We have to teach theology in the homilies. And so I call this the plumber principle. When I'm writing out my homily, okay, okay. Yep, got Jesus there. Okay, got the Lord there, right? And it's just it's a reminder for us as priests, and you know, I'm sure you have many great priests that preach Jesus, um, but that it's, it's not about us. Um, you know the different types of homilies too, right? Like a daily mass homily is a smaller homily, two to five minutes, so it's called a homilet. Pope Francis says a, a homily should be seven to ten minutes, so that's a normal length of a Sunday homily. Um, Longer than 10 minutes, it's a homilepic. Uh, if it's longer than 15 minutes, it's a homolong. And if it's longer than 20 minutes, it's called homilicide. And <laughs> I kid you not, read the gospel or read the book of Acts, right? St. Paul's preaching and it says he's going on and on and on. And in Acts chapter 20, Eutychus is a small little boy who falls asleep on the third level of this big house or building like who puts their kid at the third level in a window seal but then he falls asleep and falls over and dies because paul preached too long homilicide but fortunately paul raised him back to life um now obviously because we're in a conference and uh this is a retreat i'm going to go longer than my normal daily mass homilies um So after the homily, we move into what's called the creed. The creed literally means, I believe. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. 
See, all of us have some type of unbelief. We believe in the Lord, but there's sometimes a little bit of lack of trust. Every Sunday when we say the creed, it reaffirms what we believe as Catholics. It helps us to strengthen our trust. Because, see, Bible alone Christianity doesn't work. The creed had to be brought about, so we had to teach about who is Jesus. And the creed we know comes from, first, the Apostles' Creed was the ancient form creed that you would profess before you were baptized in Rome. And then in the year 325, they call the Council of Nicaea. Who is Jesus? We don't know. Is he, is he God? Is he just kind of, kind of like God? Is he fully God? Is he fully man? So they, they're questioning about who Jesus is. And then in, a few years later in Constantinople in 381, they have a question, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, let's call a council. Let's get all the bishops together and let's, let's hash this out using all of Scripture, using all of the church's teachings, the Didache. They put it together and like, okay, this is what we believe. And we profess that every Sunday in solemnity. And so the belief is not just a belief about some idea, but it's about a person. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's not just some idea. It's about a person. Then, after the creed, we come to the prayers of the faithful. And this is basically asking the petitions, what we want God to, to pray for us, or what we are asking God, I should say, um, to, to help us, that we recognize he is a loving father. What father would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish? Okay. St. Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, I ask that supplications and prayers in thanksgiving be offered for everyone, for kings and for all in authority, that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all devotion and dignity. So the universal prayers of the church should usually have four basic petitions, four prayers, and then from there you could build on. The first is that you pray for the church leaders, Pope Francis and the bishops, Secondly, you pray for your nation's leaders. Even if you disagree with them, you pray for them that the Holy Spirit may guide them, which we need a lot of that today. Third, you pray for those who are suffering and sick. And fourth, you pray for those who have, de- who have died. Okay, so now that we've discussed, the, went through the scriptures, the homily, the creed, the prayers of the faithful, how do you and I become disciples of the word. Particularly, I think one of the most beautiful prayers is when a man is called to be a deacon. And obviously, you guys are acolytes, so you're close to the diaconate, but you're not, you're not one of the ordinary ministers of the Holy Communion. You're an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. You're not the ordinary minister of the word of God as a lector, but an extraordinary. The deacon is an ordinary minister. And when he, receives, when he receives ordination, the bishop gives him the book of the Gospels, and he says this, Believe what you read, teach what you believe, and practice what you teach. I think that's the model for us as well, as all disciples. First, we must believe what we read. 
do you believe that what you believe is really real? Because if we believe what we believe is really real, everything changes. Our lives change. We become like Levi in the gospel today and leave everything and follow Jesus. Oftentimes we've we've encountered people who read scriptures, uh, who are lectors or even readers, and they're not convincing. My experience sometimes growing up, there was an older gentleman who was a lector, and it sounded like it was painful for him to read the Word of God. Like someone was shooting nails up his feet when he got up to the podium. And it was almost kind of painful for all of us to listen to it. Or sometimes you have people come up and it's like overly dramatic. Like, okay, the Word of God is not about us. It's about projecting it. And so that it comes through first that God has first chosen us and asked us to follow him. And through our belief, then we can give it to others. Do you believe that what you believe is really real? So the first, we must believe what we, what we read. Secondly, we must teach what we believe. You know, as lectors or acolytes, you are the leaders in your parish. You are called to be teachers, too. To immerse yourself in the word of God, to receive him daily, but then also to go out and teach others. St. Paul had disciples, and one of them was Timothy. And he writes in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, What you've seen and heard from me, entrust to other men who can teach others as well. See, it's not merely enough for us to learn the faith. It's not merely enough for us to even teach the faith. We must teach others how to teach the faith. We must teach our families first. Then we must go around and teach others how to pass on the faith. So teach what you believe is the second. And then finally, practice what you teach. And this is the difficult one, right? Because we recognize we're sinners, but fortunately we covered mercy in the first conference. St. Paul in his letter to Colossians chapter 3 says, The word of God dwelt in you richly, as in all wisdom. Teach and admonish one another. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So if we practice what we teach, we have to teach others and we have to admonish them. Sometimes we're afraid to do this, to correct people. You know you're doing this wrong. I want to correct you lovingly, fraternally correcting. We must be able to sing, right? I know growing up on a farm in rural Nebraska, we just, as men... Don't sing. But of course we sing. We sing when we get in the car and turn on the radio or we sing in the shower. If we have that kind of joy alone, we should have that with one another at church. And then to practice what we teach, we have to recognize first and foremost, we're not perfect. As we said before, God doesn't love us because we're perfect. He perfects us because he loves us. We are practicing Catholics. We have to practice what, we, what he teaches But that doesn't mean we have to be perfect. I mean, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've always found that really challenging, especially if you struggle with scrupulosity. Be perfect as your heavenly Father. That doesn't mean that Jesus expects us to be perfect. We're not perfectionists. What he means by that is to say, you must keep your eye on the goal. The word perfect, perfection in the Greek is telos. 
keeping your eye focused on heaven. That's what he means. And so recognizing we're going to fail, we're going to fall, but through failures and falling down, we learn how to become better disciples of Jesus. I leave you with the story of a saint, and maybe you've never heard of the saint. I recently read about him, Saint Euphilus. And it's a unique example of one who practiced what he taught, who believed what he read, he teached what he believed, and practiced what he taught. Um, So Euphilus grew up in Sicily around the year 300. And if you know anything about church history, that was right when the persecution of the church was some of the greatest. And at that time, they outlawed Christianity. You couldn't be Christian. You could be put to death. But they also, in order to stop it, they wanted to burn the scriptures. And so when St. Euphilus found out about that they were going to persecute Christians and burn scriptures, and if you had any scriptures your whole family and friends and household would also be put to death. He did not want his family to be subjected to that because they weren't all Christian yet. So instead, he was a very well-educated man, and so he had the means to copy down scrolls, and so he actually copied down some of the scriptures. And he had them in his hands, and he marched right up to the king and said, I am a Christian, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And, or it was the governor, and the governor said, you're going to be in prison, threw him in prison for three months, tortured him. He would not relent in his faith. And then after about three months and after starving for about a week, they said, we'll let you go as long as you renounce Jesus. He said, no, I wouldn't. And in front of his very eyes, they took out the scrolls that he worked for years to copy and they burnt him. And they said, see, your faith is going to be destroyed. We have destroyed all the written works that you have made, and the scriptures will no longer be proclaimed to people. And he said, you've forgotten one thing. Those scriptures are written on my heart. And you cannot destroy that. And with that, he went to his death. A faithful servant one who believed who he, what he read, who taught what he believed and practiced what he taught.